NWP Radio. You're listening to NWP Radio, a production of the National Writing Project. NWP. Welcome listeners, this is NWP Radio, a production of the National Writing Project. Today we are talking with Jennifer Fletcher about her recently published book, Writing Rhetorically, Fostering Responsive Thinkers and Communicators. I'm your host, Rachel Baer. Welcome, Jennifer. Um, So I'm thinking maybe we could just begin by having you introduce yourself to our listeners. So maybe tell us a little bit about yourself and your context and um, maybe some of your other books. Sure. So I'm a professor of English at California State University, Monterey Bay, and a former high school English teacher. I taught grades 9 through 12 in Southern California for over 10 years, and I now work with first-year college students and future teachers. And Writing Rhetorically is my third book with Stenhouse. Um, My first two books are also about teaching text rhetorically. Um, and those books are teaching arguments and teaching literature rhetorically. Great, thank you. So to get us started, my first question, I think this is like really an essential part of the book and why it's so interesting and appealing is how you talk about rhetorical problem solving for students. So to get us going, could you just maybe tell us what you mean by rhetorical problem solving? Yeah, a rhetorical problem is a communication task that takes some figuring out. For example, the first time that a student writes an essay for a scholarship application, they're facing a new rhetorical problem and they're gonna have to do some problem solving to figure out how to respond effectively. I really like what rhetorician Linda Flower says about rhetorical problem solving that this is a method for exploring the rhetorical situation, generating ideas, adapting to the audience, and reflecting on one's own composing process. And that planning and inquiry work requires a pretty high level of independence. It also requires an understanding of how different social contexts shape acts of communication. So lots of critical thinking going on. Mm -hmm, Absolutely, and I think even just looking initially at the idea of reframing any task a student comes across as a problem to be solved is appealing and immediately engaging. And we know that just in everyday life, like any problem you come across that needs to be solved, it immediately becomes something that you want to engage in and that you want to be be a part of and active in that process. I think that's um, really an interesting way and exciting way to have students think about their learning experiences. And it's highly transferable. I mean, problem solving and um, collaboration and communication, you know, these are the skills that higher ed faculty and that employers say they value most highly. Mm -hmm. And they're also the things that we people do, right? And their job, every job in everyday lives, both in higher education and, and in whatever work they might be in. So that makes a lot of sense. So what about then extending that you go a lot into writing rhetorically. So we rhetorical problem solving, but what does it mean to write rhetorically? When we write rhetorically, we're writing with our audience, purpose, genre, and context in mind. So this is writing as authentic communication. 
And it's writing as a form of rhetorical action. So we take rhetorical action because we genuinely care about what other people have to say. We care about what they're feeling. Um, and we want to make a contribution to uh, an issue that matters to us. Um, to act effectively, we have to know what needs to be done, what problems to solve, what questions to answer, and also what others have already done to address the issue. So we have to figure out how to build on existing efforts while adding something new. Um, all of this is part of writing rhetorically. And these are really the big ideas in the book. Great, and I think this is actually an extension of that. Um, and a really important thing to, to name is that, like what is the role of formulas in writing rhetorically? And we know in education, like people often make cases for different types of formulaic writing as being necessary for providing students like the right amount of support at a moment in time or helping them learn a skill. So what would you say about that? What is the problem with formulas? I, I've thought about whether or not we can use formulas rhetorically. And I guess my answer would be, well, maybe, you know, I think that there is a, a rhetorical decision-making process that might land on a particular formula as, as the right kind of response to, you know, particularly maybe constrained rhetorical situation, like, you know, high stakes testing. Um, what I will say is this, um, one of the problems that I see with formulas in general is that they make too many decisions for students. The more choices students make as writers, the more knowledge they build of how writing works. And that kind of theoretical and conceptual knowledge, that, that kind of meta knowledge of how texts work is essential for transfer of learning. So if the formula dictates the content, structure, and style of a composition, students don't get much of a chance to practice rhetorical problem solving. As people like John Werner have said, and I'm a big fan of Werner's work, um, writing is making choices. So rhetorical decision-making helps students to develop the expertise and the autonomy needed to effectively respond to unfamiliar literacy tasks. And, and there's another problem that concerns me with formulas. They blunt student sensitivity to situational differences. So, so transfer of learning, the ability to adapt and apply your learning in new situations depends on um, the, the ability to compare and contrast different situations, right? And to adjust your problem solving skills or your communication skills as needed and appropriate. Um, but if you have kind of one size fits all approaches to writing, um, students aren't learning to see those situational differences. So that can actually interfere with their ability to adapt and apply their learning in new uh, contexts or for new tasks. Uh, I think that we need to help students see that what counts as good writing varies according to the rhetorical situation. You know, instead of giving students a decontextualized list of like do's and don'ts, we can help them to do the detective work needed to find out if a particular move is going to be effective for a particular audience and genre. 
Great. I'm so glad you mentioned it was several times I heard you say students making choices or students' choices as writers. And even this idea of like, oh, can we think about how to use formulas rhetorically or any tool or support or scaffold? And I think that is a big part of what it comes down to. And I feel like I found myself saying that over and over again lately, how important I feel like it is for students to see themselves as writers who get to make choices. And you get at that so much in your book. It's like that, that taking on this identity and thinking about writing rhetorically, it becomes about their agency as writers and their identities as writers rather than what they think the teacher is telling them they're supposed to be or do. But actually, this is my piece of writing that I own and I get to make choices as a writer. And I think that that mind shift for students is huge. I think it's huge for all of us as writers, but especially young people who who haven't necessarily seen that or, or developed that kind of identity. Right. Absolutely. I mean, what, what we're trying to do is cultivate students' faith in their own ability to figure things out. Mm-hmm. So you address this, and some people might say, you know, going back to it, uh, arguments could be, well, students need support. Some students need formulas as support or as scaffolds or, you know, to make sure their for skills they're not quite ready for. But you say, you know, I'm not just saying, let's just put them out there and have them figured out themselves, right? That's not what the what the argument here is at all. So can you give some examples of how we can support students without being prescriptive and offering a bunch of rules for writing? Yeah, I, I think the first guideline for me is that we're scaffolding the inquiry process rather than just scaffolding the product. Um, and so for instance, I might have students analyze a set of mentor texts to identify the genre features that are valued by a particular discourse community. And of course, this is a really common practice. Um, We know how valuable mentor texts can be. And framing that work so that students see, okay, this is something that I can do whenever I encounter novelty, right? I've gone into a situation, I've never done this before. I'm, I'm freaking out a little bit. Like, how do I get help? And especially if there's no teacher here to tell me exactly like what to say and do. Okay, well, I look for models um, of the thing that I'm trying to make myself. Um, So I'll have students do things like analyze the features of a scholarly article in a science journal, or even look at the targeted ads in their own social media feeds and look at the way advertisers modify content um, in response to you know what they believe about particular audience uh, interests and concerns. Um, I'll also have students conduct an audience analysis to identify stakeholders um, that are impacted by a particular issue. So like here in Monterey County, um, like in many places, water is a, a really important uh, shared concern. And so we'll look at, you know, uh, what does this look like for the agricultural community? What does it look like for the university? What does it look like for the municipalities? Um, and really try to get that full sense of everyone who is involved and the, the interests, the beliefs, the concerns of everybody who's going to be a part of that kind of collaborative community decision making. Um, a, a big goal for me is helping students to internalize these ways of thinking about texts so that they um, aren't feeling like they, um, 
you know, their first step when they have a new situation is to ask somebody else what to do. They, they've got their own kind of plan and process that they can fall back on. Mm-hmm. Great. That's really helpful. And um, I think maybe this is like the quotable moment already for me, scaffolding the inquiry process rather than the product. I wish I had that as a go-to in the past and will in the future be, use that as a really nice way for people to try to explain to people that this, you are still scaffolding students. It's just a different thing that you're doing. You're supporting them and doing this problem solving. Um, so that was really helpful. So also in the book, you mentioned some of your own shifts in instruction over time. And I have to say, I just, as I was reading, I just kept thinking, oh yeah, yeah, I used to do that. I remember when I did that, you know, those kinds of things. And you think, you know, you do them and they come from a variety of places. And then over time you might realize they just don't work or why you start to think about why they don't work. So that's really important to open this up to people to be able to think about like, things they might have done in the past or things they're doing now that maybe aren't working the way they want to. So I appreciated having those stories. And I'm wondering if you'll just share one thing that you used to do that you realized wasn't working and and how you realized or why you realized it wasn't working. Yeah, great question. And in my teaching life, I find um, I've had to learn a lot of lessons the hard way, um, which which is now helpful to me, like in my parenting life and my writing life that like as a writer, I almost always have to write it the wrong way before I get to the right way. So, you know, this is not about... Um, you know, like, like those productive fails, like fail forward, <laughs> you know, the trial and error is really important to growth. So, uh, you know, I, I guess I can own my, my kind of past um, mistakes with gratitude. Uh, but you talked about scaffolding, and, and that's the first place that I would go. Uh, for many years, I used um, writing scaffolds that help students complete their assignments but that didn't do much to develop their knowledge of how writing works. And I think I was intimidated by students' confusion or their their frustration or their struggle. You know, they come and say, what should I do? Or I don't know how to start. And I'm like, I I wanna fix that problem for you. You know, here, let me me tell you what to do and make it better for you. Um, So I was trying to give them a structure that would set them up for success. And I would do things like offer them full essay outlines or paragraph templates or, you know, with younger students, with my ninth and 10th graders, sometimes I'd give them model introductions. I'd give them model conclusions. I'd give them a bank of quotations where they could choose their own evidence from the evidence that I had already gathered. Um, And and as I was doing this, I, I wasn't explaining like why I was doing this or talking about some of the big concepts behind these scaffolds you know, like the, the concept of um, genre or of, of like language conventions. You know, if, if you're using sentence templates or frames, that there are opportunities to, to frame that so that there is some transferable uh, learning, right? That, that students can take away principles about language conventions from using like sentence templates. But I wasn't doing any of that. And, and I realized this approach wasn't working when I noticed students were still asking me those, what should I do questions. Um, and um, 
you know, I would, was a, became aware that things weren't really working. I'd like to ask them, you know, what they thought the purpose of the scaffold was. And they'd tell me things like it was to complete the assignment. Like you use the template to finish the essay. That is what the template is for. Mm -hmm. uh, so now when I use scaffolds, I do try to frame instruction so students see the larger value of what they're learning. I try to scaffold that process of decision-making. Um, you know, effective scaffolds don't substitute a simpler task for a more complex one. It's not about, you know, making the work uh, easier to do or, or frankly, easier to grade. Effective scaffolds support students in developing the procedural and conceptual knowledge that enable them to grapple with complexity. So thank you so much for that. And I think you're probably, you know, people who are listening are thinking, okay, I'm convinced. So this totally makes sense. These are the kinds of things I want students to do. I probably also have some of these missteps that I've done in my teaching. And maybe even I'm like aware that things aren't working and convinced that I would rather do this kind of approach, but I don't really know how necessarily. And one of the things I really love about your book is that you have lots and lots of examples and classroom activities that teachers can use as is or adapt for their context. It shows exactly what this looks like. And in fact, it shows, you know, could take through processes that work in this way for students. So obviously we don't wanna to share too many because we want people to buy the book, but as a teaser, would you describe one classroom activity that you think really captures what rhetorical um, thinking or what rhetorical writing looks like? Sure. Uh, one of my favorite activities in the book is a, a group brainstorm for rhetorical decision making. And this can be the like, you know, start here kind of activity. Um, it works with middle school students. It works with upper elementary students. And it, it also models that, you know, it's really more about the questions and the inquiry work than it is about like, you know, the terms or, you know, identifying different rhetorical devices or appeals. It's, it's that process for figuring out how to um, really communicate um, in different situations and in ways that achieve your goals. So what we'll do is we'll start with a topic or a question at issue um, that the, the class sees as current and important. And I'll, I'll do this activity on a whiteboard or chart paper, or this past year I was doing it in Google Jamboard. Um, and we're really just making a group kind of map or cluster. So let's say uh, students have been reading a series of articles on the rising costs of college and the problem of student debt. Uh, and now they're gonna be entering the conversation themselves. So, so what choices do they have for responding? So we'll put that topic of college um, costs or student debt in the center of a cluster and then start uh, brainstorming purposes for rhetorical action. So, so those key questions, you know, what's the problem? What do you want to do about this issue? Um, and let's say that my students say they want to reduce student debt. That's their goal for taking action. So then I say, okay, uh, who do you want to reach? Like whose views or actions do you want to change? Who has a stake in this issue? And also, like, who has the power to make a difference? 
Um, so we'll start brainstorming stakeholders, you know, say students themselves, parents, teachers, state legislators, members of Congress, voters, universities, funders, et cetera. Um, and so they're, they're starting to kind of build out like a communication plan where they're thinking, wow, I can go all these different directions in response to the issue. And my purpose is directly connected to the audience that I'm going to try to reach. So it's, it becomes this kind of linked decision-making process or, or chain of reasoning. Uh, so when we focus on the primary audience, that's when that question of, of power comes back in. So of these people you've listed, who actually has the power to make a difference? And for that group, what do they need to believe or feel? to make a change. So now we're digging deeper into audience analysis. We're setting some priorities based on our purpose. Um, and we're gonna have to think carefully about where that particular target audience needs the most convincing. Um, is it gonna be that the problem exists, um, that they are the ones who can solve the problem or, or who are responsible for solving the problem, that you know the benefits outweigh the costs, um, that the solution will work. Like they might be on board with everything, but say, yeah, but that thing you want us to do, you know, it's not going to happen. Um, so all of this, you know, we've we've gone through the audience, we've done a close look at the audience. Now um, students can th start thinking about the best way to reach that particular group. So say they want to make a pitch, but they want to uh, for a policy change to state legislators since state legislators are the ones with the power to fund public institutions of higher education. So how do, are you gonna reach those people? Uh, we start brainstorming possible genres. Are you gonna use tweets, uh, an open letter, um, an op-ed piece, uh, advertisements, you know, phone calls, emails, petitions? Are you gonna do memes? Are you gonna try to put social pressure on them that way? Are you gonna write you know, a collective position statement? And so you know, that choosing the audience and the genre based on the topic and the purpose, that then becomes, um, usually it's a, it's a really lively conversation. Students have a lot to say when we talk through these questions and we're not going heavy on rhetorical terms or like rhetorical theory, but, but they're practicing that rhetorical decision-making in a really intentional and informed way. Mm -hmm. I think that's an important point and you make that in the book too about you know, when we talk, what are we talking about when we talk about teach rhetorical teaching? And, you know, in some cases it can turn into thinking it's about terms, but actually it's really about what you're describing here and thinking about the rhetorical situation and taking all those parts into consideration. Um, I, you know, also what I really like about that specific example and others that you have in your book is that their students are really starting with real world issues that matter to them because then that brings in engagement and authenticity right away. And that it's also authentic in the way that the kinds of considerations they're going through and thinking through with you are the things that people who write publicly in the world think about and consider. And I hate, I, I try to, like, I used to use the phrase real writers, but I don't want to do that anymore because I would want students to see themselves as real writers too. And so just thinking about the kinds of things that people actually do when they're writing publicly in the world and engaging students in those kinds of things, that, that just makes sense, right? Instead of thinking about much more foolish type of stuff that the people who are writing to go public don't, don't really consider or that's not where they start or how they support their own writing. Exactly. Yeah. Um, 
you know, working writers do their work by asking themselves these kinds of questions. Mm-hmm. That's great. Working writers. Perfect. <laughs> okay. So now this last question I have for you, I know it's a big question, but you do focus pretty extensively on argument writing um, and the specific approach to teaching argument writing. So the last thing I'm wondering is if you'll just talk a little bit about why argument writing and how this rhetorical approach applies to argument writing. So this, why this particular type of argument writing and, and what does that look like? Great question. Uh, I teach argument writing because argumentation is a way for us to learn from each other. It's, it's the back and forth of dialogue um, and that kind of collaborative social work that gets us to a deeper understanding. I appreciate what uh, John T. Gage, the, uh, another rhetorician I've learned a lot from, um, and he uh, defines argument as reasoned inquiry. When we analyze and develop arguments, we work to do things like surface assumptions, synthesize multiple perspectives, examine where a way of thinking comes from, which is tremendously important and has implications for social justice, and draw warranted conclusions from evidence. And that's a a really effective and responsive process for collaborative problem solving. So I, I want students to think of argumentation as something we do so we can help, not, not so we can win. And this has been another shift in my thinking. I, I used to frame argument writing as a contest between opposing viewpoints, right? That kind of, um, you know, pros and cons and, you know, pick a, a side and take a stand and then defend your position with evidence. Um, I'd use strategies for rebutting or diminishing the importance of counter arguments or, or for protecting like our own logic by using qualifiers. So, you know, really trying uh, earlier in my career to think about, okay, how, how do you use these logical thinking skills to prove somebody else wrong? Um, now I'm careful not to use that kind of combative language anymore when I teach argument writing. And I also don't teach students that they have to qualify every claim just to protect like their own logic. It's not about like self-defense. They don't have to rebut every counter argument just so their own position will seem stronger. You know, sometimes the most important contribution we can make to a conversation is to recognize the limits of our own understanding and and to kind of step back and, and sincerely let someone else's voice have center stage rather than like constantly trying to undermine all these different perspectives that you've engaged because you believe synthesizing multiple perspectives is you know the a way to deeper understanding and effective problem solving but you, you don't want to kind of invite them to the conversation just to say okay you're here now uh, and you're wrong <laughs> you know to to really make space for um, those views to work together and leading us toward a deeper understanding. And that rhetorical approach is is that inquiry-based, collaborative, rhetorical approach to argumentation that that really gets it to, again, how how can we do our work in the world? Uh, How can we communicate with other people in ways that are effective and ethical? Mm 
I just kept thinking as you're talking, but I also thought of this throughout reading the book, how different are many of our daily interactions would be if this were the approach to argument that people took on. So if you think about social media interactions or things we see in interactions on TV or on podcasts, that people don't genuinely like engage in this kind of argument that you're talking about that's generous and thoughtful and brings in reason perspectives rather than just trying to prove their point. So it seems like this brings, you know, has potential to bring even larger shifts in students' understanding of just how to engage with people in the world and how we could be much more productive in that process, right? So I really appreciate that, like, description of what this is, what it can look like, and in more and more ways that you show in the book, how this can look like in the classroom to support students as, as writers. So thank you. Thank you so much for this. Uh, this is great. Thank you for the book. It's amazing. People, you'll definitely want to get this book. Uh, you can buy it from Stenhouse Publishers. And um, like I said, we've only barely, you know, touched the surface of what, what we have in the book here and the potential for activities to use and to make shifts in, in the way we teach argument writing in our classroom. So um, make sure you buy the book. And then just one last follow-up, you should look for Jennifer at the NWP conference on argument that will be um, hosted by Louisville Writing Project on uh, November 17th, the day before NCTE. She'll be our keynote speaker for that conference. So really looking forward to, to having her there. And thank you so much, Jennifer. Have a great rest of the day. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You're listening to NWP Radio, a production of the National Writing Project. NWP. W W W W